<clears throat> this is the fourth day of this January 2022 seven-day Rohatsu Seshin. And today we're going to turn to uh, a book with the teachings of Ajahn Chah, the uh, Thai forest master, died about 30 years ago. Uh, the title of this book is Being Dharma, the Essence of the Buddhist Teachings. And I'll read a little bit from the <clears throat> introduction just about Ajahn Chah. This is from a foreword written by Jack Cornfield. It says, When the first Western disciples arrived at Wat Pa Pong in the 1960s, Ajahn Chah did not give them the special admiration and treatment that Western monks often received in Thailand. He did not excuse them from any of the demanding challenges and strict training of the monastery. Seated on a wooden bench at the foot of his cottage in the center of a huge forest, he peered at them like a watchmaker taking off the cover of an intriguing new piece and demanded to know whether they understood suffering or how to find peace in this world. Then he would laugh in welcome and bid them to listen, and if they dared, to join him in practice for a while. <clears throat> in those years, the monastic community was relatively small, and Ajahn Chah was still unknown as a teacher. Twenty-five years later, he had become one of the most honored and revered forest masters of the century, and in 1993, nearly a million people joined the king and queen of Thailand at his funeral in order to pay their last respects at his temple. By then, his influence had spread worldwide with a hundred branch monasteries and respected disciples teaching internationally. Then a little bit more about him. This is uh, written by the translator of this book, who, by the way, not listed on the cover, but, yeah, translated by Paul Breiter. Uh, both Jack Cornfield and Paul Breiter studied with Ajahn Chah. <clears throat> in fact, in the book, there's a picture of the two of them and uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who was uh, one of his other Western disciples, now a, a teacher. <clears throat> so he says, Ajahn Chah constantly pushed people past what they were likely to consider their limits. The practice in his monasteries did not always follow what might seem to be reasonable, and the routine was always changing. He sometimes recounted his own difficulties in practice and the resolve with which he faced them and spurred himself on. And this is uh, his words, Ajahn Chah. Before I started to practice, I thought to myself, the Buddhist religion is here, available for all, yet why do only some people practice it while others don't? Or if they do practice, they only do so for a short while and then give it up. And those who don't give it up 
still don't knuckle down and do the practice. Why is this? So I resolved to myself, okay, I'll give up body and mind for this lifetime and try to follow the teaching of the Buddha down to the, le- to the last detail. I'll reach understanding in this lifetime, because if I don't, I'll still be sunk in suffering. I'll let go of everything else and make a determined effort. No matter how much difficulty or suffering I have to endure, I'll persevere. If I don't do it, I'll just keep on doubting. Thinking like this, I got down to practice. No matter how much difficulty I had to endure, I did it. I looked on my whole life as if it were only one day and a night. I gave it up. I'll follow the teaching of the Buddha. I'll follow the Dharma to understand why this world is so wretched. I wanted to know. I wanted to see the truth, so I turned to the practice of Dharma. While he was most tolerant of people's shortcomings and limitations, he always wanted his disciples to make as much effort as they possibly could simply for the goal of escaping from the clutches of Mara, the evil one. For anyone who doesn't know, Mara is the Buddhist sort of equivalent of of Satan, a tempter. Mara who holds us prisoner in this realm of suffering. He did not see this as something easily accomplished. If practicing Dharma were easy, everyone would be doing it, he often said, but as really the only thing worth doing with a human life. A little further on, Ajahn Chah often speaks about heedlessness. By that term, he means a careless, unaware approach to living, and he notes that it is often compounded by comforts. But until one starts to do without such things, these links remain hidden. Soft living tends to make the mind soft. He spoke about the simple way of life in the not-too-distant past in Thailand. Before, when the country was not developed, everyone built their toilet some distance from the house, out in the forest. You had to walk out there to use it. But now the toilet has to be in the house. The city people even have to have it right where they sleep. Such a concept struck him as funny. Laughing, he said, people think that will make them more comfortable and happy to have a toilet in their bedroom. But it doesn't really bring happiness. (laughs) and it increases the habit of laziness. Reminds me of what the Dalai Lama said, that the West has perfected samsara. (laughs) His way of training was not meant to be an endurance test, however. When he saw disciples making great efforts in a mindless, mechanical way, he would correct them. And he was never ambiguous about where the emphasis should lie. After the Buddha's years of fruitless asceticism, he came to realize the way to liberation lay in the mind. The body itself was just a material object incapable of enlightenment. It was not also not something evil 
that hindered spiritual development and needed to be tortured or weakened. This is as much a deviation as trying to beautify the body and seeking happiness through sensual pleasure and social approval. So the role of asceticism in creating simplicity and non-involvement in confusion, not deprivation for its own sake. So the role of asceticism is in creating simplicity. And statements such as destroy your body or destroy the world do not literally refer to suicide or nuclear weapons, but in the context of meditation and Ajahn Chah's lively ways of teaching to destroying attachment to these things. Ajahn Chah was not afraid to test the extremes in his own practice, and he saw this experience as instructional for himself. He sometimes pushed people to very difficult limits and beyond. Such methods can be painful to undergo, but one comes to see where the mind holds on and limits itself, and to see that the real suffering comes from the mind's attachments, fears, and preconceptions. This is one of the valuable... One of the valuable things about Sashin is the difficulties that we run into. Obviously, the first, most obvious, is physical pain, but there's others, loneliness, discouragement, despair. To go through these things and to see their nature, to understand how involved our own preconceptions and ideas are in the suffering that they bring, It's extremely valuable. And it's true even outside of Sashin. Everything in life that we have trouble with can teach us. And the great thing is you don't have to go looking for it. It'll come and find you. He did not recommend fasting, vows of silence, or avoiding contact with others. He said... We practice with our eyes open. If avoiding people and sense contact were the way to enlightenment, the blind and the deaf should be enlightened. Wisdom is to be found in the realm of sense contact. The world is transcended by knowing the world, not by avoiding it. Living at close quarters with others in the same routines day after day, which is the way of life in his monasteries, can reveal a lot about one's habits the way one creates suffering for oneself. He often said, if it's hot and difficult, that's it. That's the place of practice. Now we'll turn directly to his words. He says, if we just have mindfulness and clear comprehension of ourselves, we can do the practice. Some will think, I have no time to meditate. I have to sell things. Here, of course, he's talking to lay people. 
Hey, when you're doing business, do you breathe? If you have time to breathe, you have time to practice Dharma. Meditation is nothing but this awareness and sensitivity. But when you talk about meditating while you sell, people think it means to sit down in the market and close your eyes. Awareness means knowing what you are doing at the moment. Today, did you speak, act, and think wrongly? If you have mindfulness, you must know. This is so difficult to do is to maintain awareness through the day. So many of us struggle with moving from the mat into daily life. And sometimes people sort of give up. They just say, well, that's the way I am. <clears throat> maybe maybe not out loud, maybe not even out loud, even to themselves. But at a certain point, they just go, oh, well, it just I just can't seem to do this. But that's not the case. If you keep at it, if you catch yourself, even if it's infrequently at first, and turn the mind back to whatever your practice is, Maintain your awareness, know what you're doing, and don't be lost in thoughts. If you keep at that, it gets better, and it makes a difference, makes a huge difference. <clears throat> he says, so don't think that practicing Dharma means you have to ordain and live in a monastery. When you are doing business or housework, writing or whatever, it is the same as with the breath. You don't need to set aside time just to do that. Even when you sleep, you breathe. Why? Breathing is critical to life. Actually, breath is an extremely refined nutrient. We can't do without it for two minutes. The finest delicacy we can do without for two hours or two weeks. But how far can we go without breath? So the Buddha told us to contemplate the breath in and out. All parts of the body depend on it. It is the supreme food. When you contemplate, you see how valuable and precious it is for you, better than money, gold, or diamonds. If it exits and doesn't enter, your life is over. If it enters and does not exit, you're dead. Seeing the frailty of your life through seeing the breath is the meditation on the recollection of death. Just realizing this fact, that if the breath goes in but does not go out again, or goes out but does not come in again, your life is over, is enough to change the mind. It will startle you into being awake. Your outlook will be transformed and your behavior will change accordingly. You will fear wrong actions and have a sense of shame, of craving, or hatred excuse me, have a sense of shame toward them. You won't be so inclined to follow your impulses of craving or hatred. Mindfulness will naturally increase and wisdom will come rushing to assist you, teaching you many things. <clears throat> so much we can learn through awareness may not be able to tell anybody else what it is, but we learn the way things are. He says, take an interest in your breath, set mindfulness on it, and many kinds of wisdom will arise. It is easy, because we all have breath. When you lie down, you can fix attention on it until you fall asleep. This is truly easy. 
Well, it's easy to work at it. It will make the mind clean and peaceful no matter if you are an ordained person or a lay person. Meditation is something to help us get beyond suffering. We can see what is right and wrong, but if we don't practice, we don't see clearly. Whatever we do, we should do it with knowledge. This is how the Buddha wanted his disciples to live. Of course, in Zen practice, not everyone is meditating on the breath, although almost all of us begin with that as a foundational practice. But the same factors play out with koan work, shikantaza. As long as the attention is close and careful and thorough, and we make that effort to sustain it, <clears throat> will work out in this way. And we move to a section entitled The Trapper's Snare. No aches and pains in the body, no fever or sickness. Can there be such a thing? We beings are caught, caught in the snares of Mara, the evil one. If we are caught in the snare, Mara can do anything to us. He can afflict us in our eyes, our ears, our limbs, anywhere. Truly, all of us are living in a fragile, complicated, amazingly put-together instrument, the human body. The more you learn about it, the more amazing it is. It's almost like a Rube Goldberg machine, right down to the cellular level and deeper, deeper still. It's amazing that it works, but it is fragile. He says, Mara can afflict us in our eyes, our ears, our limbs, anywhere. It is the same as when someone sets a snare for animals, digs a trapper's pit, or baits a hook. When a bird comes to eat and is caught, what can it do? The snare has it by the neck. Where can it go? It tries to fly, but it can't get away. It struggles, but it can't break the snare. Then the hunter, the owner of the trap, arrives. He sees the bird caught in the snare just as he had hoped. He grabs the bird. It struggles, and if it tries to nip the hunter or peck at him, he can break its beak. It may try to fly, but he can break its wings. It frantically tries to run. He can break its legs. The owner of the snare has all the authority here. However the bird tries to get away, there is no escaping. Likewise, we are caught in a trap. The Lord Buddha was the one who saw and knew clearly according to the truth. He was a prince, an heir to the throne, who enjoyed all the royal treasures and privileges. When he saw what things were really like, he renounced everything. He clearly and unmistakably saw the nature of ordinary existence and without any regrets left it behind. Seeing it as danger, he fled. Having been born, caught by birth, he saw that he was like a bird caught in a snare. The noose was around his neck. He saw the liability, so he left it all, just walked away. Thus, after his enlightenment, he pointed this out 
showing what is harmful and what is beneficial in this realm of uncertainty. He would not allow himself to be submerged and drown in it. He refused to die there. He would not agree to be caught in the noose, so he was able to renounce the world and remove himself from it. Having seen, having attained realization, he then taught us to know about these things. Still, though he explained the faults and dangers, the obscurations of people prevent them from seeing. The mind is so thick, so dark. It just stays like that and keeps on accumulating afflictions and desires. In all these dharmas, if we investigate, we can see the liability and suffering in them. Just as it is said, birth is suffering. We are born into this world. Do we suffer? We have contracted birth. We have arms and legs, eyes and ears. All these things coming into existence are just suffering coming into existence. Then we have to find a way to get by, struggle to support ourselves, raise a family, and so forth. We contact something and become stuck in attachment. We touch something else and get mired in that. There's headache and worry about ourselves, anxiety over children, concern over wealth and possessions. Having been born, anything can degenerate at any time. The ears can degenerate into deafness. The eyes can lose their sight. Pain can afflict the limbs or any other parts of the body. We cannot soar away because we are caught in the snare, the snare of the trapper. It is up to the trapper now to do as he wishes. We're in the trap. He can take care of us and raise us, or he can break our beaks, break our wings. This trap represents the demon of the aggregates, or the demon of the afflictions. The aggregates are the skandhas, also referred to as the skandhas, or heaps, basically the components of our lives, form, consciousness, etc. Here the mass of humans do not understand the Dharma and only want to escape from reality. They strive to avoid it and struggle to get away. They don't want it to be the way it is, but wish for it to be otherwise. So it leads to suffering by way of sensual desire, desire for becoming, and desire not to be. This is basic Buddhist teaching. So the Buddha taught us to analyze the body, to give rise to dispassion, detachment, and disenchantment, and to see that these conditions are not a being, an individual, or a self. Our true self is no self. It's like when we are working in the fields. We put up a scarecrow when the rice is maturing so the birds won't alight to eat the crop. We gather grass and sticks, tie it all together, cover it with a shirt and pants. Then the birds are afraid. They won't eat the rice now. Scarecrow is helping us. Now the rice has a chance to ripen, then we can harvest it, and the job is done. But actually, it was only a skeleton of grass and sticks. Once we've harvested the rice, we can discard the scarecrow there in the paddy. That's all there is to it. We are just like the scarecrow. 
When consciousness leaves this body, there is nothing, no different from the skeleton of grass. The scarecrow in the field does not go anywhere, and ultimately it is just discarded there. But now we can move, we can go places. We have all sorts of thoughts and feelings and desires to do things and travel about. We think about going and we go. We think about staying, so we stay. We want to sing and dance and play according to the way of the world. To put it simply, it's just as if we are waiting for the day of death. The harvest time comes, the crop is reaped, the rice gathered and carted away, and the scarecrow is discarded in the field. When the day of harvesting comes, we depart. Someone who doesn't know the beginning or end of things will feel elation and depression and go on spinning around, not wanting to have illness when he gets sick, not wanting to get old when he gets old, not wanting to die when he dies, not wanting life to disappear. But things are like this. We don't understand the law of nature and we want things to be stable and permanent. This is me, that is her. Everything is seen in terms of me and mine, and Dharma is never contemplated. The point is, when it gets to the end, everyone must leave it all behind. Material gain, reputation, praise, whatever happiness or suffering there is, it is all left here in the world. They are all worldly accomplishments. <clears throat> course we all know this stuff again basic Buddhist teaching but how close to home does it hit how deeply can we take it in the Buddha taught in this way because he saw the value of really taking it to heart really understanding the situation that we're in in the short term it can be <clears throat> disturbing and people find it depressing. Heard Buddhism characterized as a gloomy religion. It's a religion that tells the truth. This is the way things are. When we know it, when we've got it in our bones, when we understand how precious this one opportunity is, then we can apply ourselves. Then we have some strength, some motivation, some understanding. <clears throat> some people hear this sort of thing and then they immediately begin to beat themselves up. They say, well, I just don't do that. I, I don't have the character. I don't, I'm just a bad practitioner. It's always about moving along the path seeing the need, seeing the direction that we want to go in. It's the nature of aspiration. It's I'm going to go this way. This is where I'm going. This is the thing that I value. This is what I'm going to work toward. <clears throat> Roshi told me the story of another teacher he met, I think I've mentioned this before, who said, you know, I came to realize I'm not a very good practitioner not very good at this, but I'm going to keep it up. In fact, any kind of judgment about ourselves is a hindrance. To think we're good at it, 
to think we're average, to think we're poor. That's all nonsense. Harvest time comes, the scarecrow is discarded in the field. When the day of harvesting comes, we depart. Someone who doesn't know the beginning or end of things will feel elation and depression and go on spinning around. We, uh, it's amazing how normal it is to become disturbed by the things that we know to expect. Getting sick, getting old. Getting old especially, what, what did you expect? I guess you could die young, if you'd rather do that. But it's human, I guess. <clears throat> Call it human. He says, we don't understand the law of nature, and we want things to be stable and permanent. This is me, that is her. Everything is seen in terms of me and mine, and Dharma is never contemplated. We're so wrapped up in our identity, this world of self and other. We know the teaching can even have a glimpse into the reality that there is no self and no other. Still, we're caught by it because of our long, long habit. He says, looking at Dharma, don't look far away. If you look far away, you won't see. When you have doubts about Dharma, look at yourself. Look at this body and this mind. What is there that is certain or reliable? To what extent are they yourself? How much essence do they have? How stable, how permanent or long-lasting are they? There's no such part that is like this. We have hair and it will gray. We have teeth and they will decay and fall out. The ears will lose their hearing. The vision will weaken. The skin will become wrinkled and dry. Why is it like this? Because we have no power to force things to be the way we want. They follow their own conditions and don't listen to the commands of anyone. <clears throat> it's like a river that flows to the south. If we see it and want it to flow in the other direction, can that happen? There can only be frustration then. The water flows south, and we want it to flow north. When will this ever be resolved? Is the water wrong, or are we wrong? It's just a way to create frustration. Nature is like that, things following their laws. No matter how much we wish to force it to be otherwise, it just continues on in that way. What should we do? If we think like this, where can we find happiness? The river flows on in the same direction. Thinking we cannot make a change, trying to do something about it, we find it is beyond our ability. So the Buddha wanted us to practice meditation, to listen to the Dharma and investigate, and to see according to the truth, the truth of the river. If it flows south, let it flow, flow that way. Don't fight it. If there is a person with the eye of wisdom who stands by the river, 
sees it flowing south and can accept that because it is just the nature of things, there is no conflict or frustration. The water flows in its way, and that's all there is to it. That is dharma, that is nature. There is aging, sickness, and death. In the beginning there is birth, in the middle aging, and in the end breaking up and disappearing. Those who can contemplate and see the truth of this will be at peace. When we're young, it's much harder to take in the idea of one's death. There's just so much time ahead of us. Uh, there are some some people to whom that realization comes a little more quickly. But as you get older, you really begin to get a feeling for it. See so many people that you knew who are gone. It's one of the advantages of getting old is being able to see what's going on, to understand it in your bones. Of course, for some people who can't accept the way the river flows, it's just more misery. They fight against it and make themselves unhappier than they already were. Going to skip ahead here. <clears throat> here he's talking about meditation practice. This was uh, from uh, part of a lecture at a retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, which is in Barry, Massachusetts. It's one of the big Vipassana centers in this country. He says, when developing samadhi, that is, absorption, concentration. Fix your attention on the breath and imagine you are sitting alone with no other people and nothing else around to bother you. Develop this perception, sustaining it until the mind completely lets go of the world outside and all that is left is simply the awareness of the breath entering and leaving. The mind must set aside the external world. Don't allow yourself to start thinking about the people sitting around you. <clears throat> this is basic instruction for Sashin. Sheng Yen says the same thing. Sit as if you're the only person in the Zendo. Still, you see people looking around during Kinhin, maybe casting glances here and there. Don't do that. Don't sell yourself short. It's just a habit. We have this habit of going outside. And it, the only way to overcome it is to develop the habit of staying here, staying present. One habit will replace another, but you have to be persistent and you have to continue. A little bit of effort followed by going back to our standard patterns isn't going to do the job. It's not like we have to suddenly make a blinding resolution and never again stray. It's just going in that direction, knowing which direction we want to go in, finding opportunities to keep it real, to keep it here. 
letting go of the distractions that seem like they'd be pleasant, being willing to sit with discomfort. As Joko Beck says, being willing to rest on the icy couch. says, the mind must set aside the external world. Don't you allow yourself to start, start thinking thoughts about the people sitting around you. Don't give opportunity to any thoughts that will stir the mind. It's better to throw them out and be done with them. There is no one else here. <clears throat> you are sitting all alone. Develop this perception until all memories and thoughts concerning people and things subside and you're no longer taking an interest in such externals. Then you can fix your attention solely on the in and out breaths. Breathe normally. Allow the inhalations and exhalations to continue naturally without forcing them to be longer or shorter, stronger or weaker than normal. Allow the breath to continue normally and smoothly and observing it entering and leaving the body. <clears throat> of course, this is exactly the way that we teach breath practice here. There are other systems, and um, other systems work, but this is, this is really basic. A great deal of value in learning to let the breath take its natural pattern really training and not trying to control everything. Learning that you can be intimately aware of something without having to affect it, shape it. You can let it blossom naturally, see what's there. He says, once the mind has let go of external objects, you will no longer feel disturbed by the sounds of traffic or other noises. You won't feel irritated with anything outside. Whether it's forms, sounds, or whatever, they won't be a source of disturbance because the mind won't be paying attention to them as it becomes centered upon the breath. Of course, any time you're finding something distracting and hard to put up with, it's simply lack of focus. It's amazing how when you're tired enough, <laughs> you can sleep even when there's all kinds of noise going on. The toughest thing to set aside, of course, is the voices of other people, if people are talking. In the summer here in this Zendo, people walk down the street, down Arnold Park, and on a summer evening, windows are open and <laughs> entire conversations go on right maybe 20, 30 feet away from us. It's always an interesting practice to <clears throat> turn the mind to the practice. You can get so you don't actually hear what they're saying, just like in a Charlie Brown cartoon. <laughs> Every now and then it gets a little too raucous and noisy. I went out once as, as the head monitor and <laughs> told the people, you know, there are 30 people sitting 20 feet away who can hear every word you're saying. <laughs> they moved along.
If the mind is agitated by different things and you can't concentrate, try taking an extra deep breath until the lungs are completely full. Then release all the air until there is none left inside. Do this several times, then reestablish awareness and continue to develop concentration. Having established mindfulness, it is normal that for a period the mind will be calm. Then it will become distracted again. When this happens, bring it back. Take another deep breath and expel all the air from your lungs. Fill the lungs to capacity again for a moment, then reestablish mindfulness of the breath. Fix your mindfulness on the inhalations and exhalations once more. practice tends to go like this, so it may take many sittings and a lot of effort before you become proficient. Once you are, the mind will let go of the external world and remain undisturbed. External phenomena will be unable to penetrate inside and disturb the mind. When they cannot penetrate, you will see the mind. <clears throat> this is samadhi. This is how people resolve their koan. This is when you become, as they say, accident prone. Okay, our time is up, so we will stop here and recite the four vows. <clears throat>